Welcome to Season 4 of Game Design Unboxed on the No Direction Network. Danielle Reynolds talks to tabletop game designers about the games they've made. Together, they unbox how the game went from inspiration to publication. Proudly sponsored by AllPlay. If you're looking for a board game table, bag, playmat, or great board games, check them out at letsallplay.com. Thank you for joining me, Danielle, for Game Design Unbox Inspiration to Publication, Episode 83, Home. Today we are joined by Doug Levinowski and Yun Su, Julian Kim. Thanks for being on the show, you two. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us on. To begin with, for anyone who doesn't know who you both are, how did you get into the game design industry? Doug, I'll let you take this first. Sure. I got in as like very much a hobby. A friend of mine and I started working on a game and then took it to Kickstarter and it failed. <laughs> the typical uh, game design journey now. And then uh, learned a lot from that process and reworked it, republished, uh, re-kickstarted it. It was successful the second time around, but in the process of figuring out how to make it work, met a lot of people and got involved with the community and really enjoyed having it as a hobby. So I just kept doing it. And what about you, Jules? My path was a little bit, like, it's kind of hard to say. It was a little bit convoluted in that I like to joke, but in all seriousness, it's actually kind of just a true story that the reason that I got into game design was because in college, in my junior year, all my friends went abroad for a semester because I was in film school. And so all my film school friends were just suddenly gone, which left me with all my game design courses and game design friends. And I just really, like, leaned into that really hard and figured out what I liked about games so much and took a bunch, I was at NYU. So it was like Eric Zimmerman uh, and Jesper Yule teaching classes at that point. And I just kind of, I went and got a minor in game design in grad school. I went and started, I wasn't in a program for game design, but I ended up taking a lot of kind of game design or game design adjacent classes. And then right out of there, it was a, I kind of got really into like immersive theater. And that was a bit of a, gateway drug to LARP <laughs> and I started designing LARPs and a card game with a you know with a friend from my grad program and it just kind of all started snowballing and I started just working in all sorts of different parts of game design from there. That is really interesting. So you're actually the first guest I've had that studied any form of game design. So I'd be curious oh, cool. like what does that even look like off topic? It's interesting. I mean it's I do miss academia sometimes <laughs> and occasionally have played with the idea of like, do I want a PhD? Cause I, I have a, you know, I have a bachelor's and a master's at this point. And sometimes I'm like, what if I studied, you know, games or performance arts in some way that merges these, cause I'm really interested in LARP and like the performance aspect along with the playability aspect and how do you merge mechanics uh, and interactivity and performance and like, how does an audience get involved in that? And ultimately, so far, I kept talking myself out of the PhD path, um, for better or worse, probably for better. I mean, your wallet's probably happier. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's really like, I mean, one of the texts that we read, I swear to God, we read this in every single game design class I'm in, or I was in, and I still, like, I have a copy of it on my shelf here somewhere, and it still kind of holds up, despite how old it is, is Hamlet on the holodeck. And it's really, it's a very... <laughs> It's kind of a, a time capsule of people thinking about what are games going to look like in the future when it has to do with immersion and this idea of is more 360 immersion in your games better, you know, and what does that look like? And the, obviously the idea of like the holodeck from Star Trek of being able to kind of 
create any kind of environment that you want. And it's, it's, I do work a little bit in video games, but obviously mostly it's TTRPGs and still there's, it's weird how much of that is still applicable to what I do now. Oh, that's really cool. And how did the two of you end up meeting and eventually co-designing Home? Banana Chan introduced the two of us. I was talking about doing uh, an actual play podcast and Banana was like, yeah, I think you should talk to these people. And Jules was one of them. That was a few years ago now. I'm trying to remember exactly. I remember, I actually remember the exact day because we were, I was at a convention or a conference and Banana turned around and was like, hey, do you want to do this podcast? So me and Morgan and Morgan and I were like, yeah. And then the, the Red Death podcast, which was, it was, what was it originally? Was it, was it a second edition D&D venture that you updated to 5e? Yeah, it was a, a module in second edition, right, updated to 5e. And then eventually we switched it over to the Dice Up system that Kristen and Tim Devine designed for epilogues of the North Sea that just fit better for the the storytelling we were doing. We were doing a lot less combat and a lot more narrative stuff, and their system is just so, so, so much better at that. Yeah, we got into some heavy, have some heavy narrative material. Yeah, we're, we're here for the suffering. No, I mean, that's great for some people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Home, the spotlight of this episode mind going over where the inspiration came from and how to play the game sure i started working on it for a while i was doing these sort of small one-off pdf kickstarters with just digital delivery you know no printing none of that to worry about and i'd had this idea kicking around in my head about like what would it be like to play a game where you're exploring a version of the childhood home of all of the players at the table. And so originally I had envisioned it as like a drawing directly from your personal life, like maximum bleed, and had started working on that and kept finding in playtests that people would, as soon as they heard that, would be like all in about a haunted house and then like refuse to play themselves, especially exploring their childhood home. And so I realized it wasn't something that interested most people, despite how much it interested me. And around that time, Jules and I were talking about working on something and just sort of kept talking about that. And so eventually we agreed we were going to work on it together. How did the beginning of that game design actually look? What system did you use? What was the base of it? Just like talk me through it. Yeah, initially it was very, very, very almost exclusively narrative and very freeform. Without knowing it, it wound up being a lot like The Quiet Year. And when I played a, a test of it with John Gilmore, he said, have you played The Quiet Year? If not, we're stopping this play test and we're doing that right now. And we did. And then Jules and I talked about it and just said like, yeah, like this as a sort of core system to it that we then extended and modified and altered just really worked perfectly for the kind of map building thing we're doing since part of the game is drawing out the map of this house that you're exploring as you uncover it. So how do you play the campaign? Jules, do you want to take this one? Yeah, at the heart of it, I mean, it is, I always say at the heart of it, but there's like five different things at the heart of it, I would say. <laughs> at the five hearts of it, sure. At the five hearts of it, one heart is that it's there's map drawing involved. So uh, the game comes with 
like a sheet of <laughs> I'm sure there's a technical term for this a sheet of paper you can draw on and then erase it dry erase paper dry erase yeah um, a dry erase sheet and so as the players are exploring the house and coming across new rooms they're going to be drawing uh those rooms it doesn't have to be obviously like nicely drawn i can't draw for the life of me um but the idea of a room will go onto that sheet and you can connect them and label them and and, you know mark anything that you think is like super important on there and that kind of is the focal point of the table the the one of the other hearts of it are prompt cards uh so there's something called the night deck and it's divided into different phases or sections of the night so the idea is that you are in this building this house over the course of an entire night so you arrive when it's you know roughly around dusk and then you're there through midnight and the witching hour and false dawn until morning so that's how the deck is divided into these different sections of night and they're all kind of characterized by different intensities and flavors of supernatural stuff that's going on so it'll it ramps up It starts off a little bit slower, a little bit kind of more subtly eerie, and then things just, you know, become steadily more unhinged as the night goes on. And each card will have prompts on them that are essentially phrased as questions to the players uh, that they kind of take some time to reflect on, see how they want to answer it, and then they integrate that answer into the narrative of what's going on. And whoever is answering a prompt card currently in that scene kind of takes the role of the director of that scene in a both kind of um game mastery way but also a cinematic sort of way uh and so while it is a gmless game it's, it's kind, of, that's kind of i don't know it is a gmless game but at the same time it's kind of the opposite of gmless game because everybody is the game master <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's like as many game masters as you can have but yeah, that's that's kind of that that's that at least two of the five hearts of it. I need to know what are the other three hearts. Gotta come up with other hearts. Uh <laughs> well, we do have the different the, the haunting tales, right? So that the third heart <laughs> is and I chose five with five was like yeah, five is an arbitrary number, so it's gonna be really funny to try to see if we can divide it up in <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna say that's not even trying to build a house with <laughs> pillars. You could have gone four, you went five. <laughs> yeah, another thing is that we have a different types of supernatural presences and scenarios that uh, players can build their story around so one for instance is okay what if it's what if the house is a witch's house um and another one is what if the elements have taken over this house in a very kind of sinister creeping way where nature seems to be corrupting um this place and others include what if you know what if there are aliens that have been messing around with this environment and another one is basically answering the question of what if you had this house that is experiencing a haunting that is messing with linear time so you're not witnessing or interacting with everything in a linear format and you're seeing these relics from the past and the future kind of you know glitching and out of existence in this place and our stretch goal writers all contributed different haunting tales so like different scenarios for what is this haunting like what is this unnatural presence in the house like and that that's been actually one of the funnest parts of working on this project was seeing what everybody came up with because it was it was really like everything was very different and very wild and scary Mm -hmm. 
yeah, there were a bunch of times when we were reading through stuff where we would like just both like recoil back from the computer and go like, oh, oh, I hate that. Yeah, that's got to go in. Kristen's dolls come to mind. <laughs> yeah. So because all these are hauntings and kind of creepy creatures and stuff, I'm sure you had to first off figure out what kinds of things you can use that are not related to like an IP, but also creating your own. Like, did you make a list of a bunch of things? Like, hey, we want witches involved. Hey, we want, I don't know, Slenderman thing that you can put. I don't even know what you can put into these games nowadays. Yeah. I mean, I'm sort of, my brand is uh, similar, but legally distinct, I think with like the kids on bikes, kids on brooms thing. But the way we went about this was we sort of just started with the stuff, at least for me, like what creeps me out the most, because chances are we can mine that to creep other people out. So I think we had, what did we have? Like eight or nine possible ones at the start. And just based on what we felt like we had enough content for whittled it down to the five that are in the that we wrote in the core set and one of them is is very loosely based off of that initial idea you had of yeah childhood home so we have characters childhood bedrooms and rooms that they found scary as a child showing up mm-hmm. and their old kind of items beloved items from childhood showing up as well and what i love about having the the different like ways to modulate it is you know, for a group that wants to have that experience of creeping themselves out with the childhood home, they can, and it can be safe for them if that's a space they're safe to play in. But for, you know, a group that says, well, I want to play this game, but, you know, one or two of our players really don't want to do the childhood thing. Boom, you've got aliens. And for one person who, you know, feels unsafe with aliens, great, it can be the witch house. So it with this one, it wasn't so much that we were like, oh, we want to think about like, how can we do a Freddy Krueger IP that's, you know, similar but legally distinct and more like, what are those sort of tropes from horror movies, the sort of big overarching genres that we can lean into and, and get these really wonderful, creepy questions that players have to choose between. So like the fourth heart of the game is this idea that that Jules had where almost all of the cards in the night deck force you to choose between one of two questions to answer. And as it accelerates in the night, like those questions just get worse and worse and worse for your character. And so that idea of giving people control in choosing which question, but taking the control away of having it be a question that like they would want for their character was just i mean brilliant on their part and i think really adds to the game so for those tarot cards like dusk midnight and all those are they able to be used for each of the different scenarios so if you're doing like the childhood home versus the aliens or is there set decks for each storyline there are two parts of the night that have separate questions for the different haunting tales so there's the outside cards which are the very first ones you use and that sort of sets the stage for what you'll do callbacks to later on the dusk cards when you're in the house are standard for every one and then midnight brings back that haunting tale but other than that it's i think it's a a total of like 15 cards for each different haunting tale and there's like 200 cards in the game 
Yeah, so there's a lot of variability between um, playthroughs just because even if you played the same Haunting Tale two times in a row, the chances that you're going to get the exact... <laughs> you're definitely not going to get the exact same cards that you did before with the, the rest of the deck. So it has also been very interesting to see throughout all the playtests that we've run and, and witnessed and heard about how different each playthrough of the same Haunting Tale turns out to be. Like, people have come back to us with some really wildly different stories of what happened in their games and typically how long does it take to run a campaign of this game it's designed as a one shot and it's usually like four four hours five hours usually about four yeah and when you were choosing to design this specific game you went more with like cards versus dice like what made that decision for you I really love, <laughs> I love, I love cards. I just, I really like prompts. And um, that was also, I think, part of, granted, it was a million years ago, I feel like, when we started this project. <laughs> but I feel like that was something that originally was very tied to the fact that we were looking at a quiet year so much. And then I was also simultaneously with working on this, I was working on Women Are Werewolves uh, with CAS Taylor who was also a kick, one of the Kickstarter writers for this. Um, and that's very, that's card-driven storytelling game. So I was very much in a headspace of trying to come up with narrative prompts that fit nicely on a card. Because I really like, I really like concise prompts. Um, part of that is just, it's easier to keep track of things when they're formatted that way. Having to make sure that everything fits on a card is a nice limitation to make sure that you aren't getting too wordy for people to follow. And yeah, we just, I don't know, we just kept going more all in on cards as, as the design kept evolving. Yeah, and I, I think with using cards, it, how do I put this without sounding like ridiculously pretentious? Well, I'll just sound pretentious, I guess. Uh, you know, to me, it's like whether we wanted input or output randomness, right? The, the prompts, are the randomization at the start that then you as the player respond to and have some control over. So you get to decide what you do in response to this question, as opposed to having a die say what happens in response to, to what your attempted action is, if that makes sense. No, it definitely makes sense. I don't have as much experience with playing RPGs and the few that I have played that require dice. I always found the storytelling to be way more captivating to me. So I feel like this game is actually more of something I would enjoy versus D&D. I never really got super into D&D. Yeah, I think it makes a lot. Yeah, it makes a lot. I, I also, I mean, games wise, I think RPGs for me really started with D&D, like so many other people, mm -hmm. right? And then as you start leaning kind of away from combat and more into meaty narrative bits it can feel like kind of like growing pains a little bit and that's i don't know i really like um a, a powered by the apocalypse games for that reason because i i find i like the freedom there that it gives and i don't know a lot of these other indie systems um i just find like there's a lot to play around with right now it's a really good time to play around with very narrative narrative heavy games yeah for sure and what other components do you have besides the cards, the book, and the map? Do you have anything else that you're using? Yeah, we have some tokens in the game. So one of the the fifth heart of the game is the <laughs> nice <laughs> the process of your character 
trying to fulfill some sort of emotional, psychological need they have over the course of the night and getting wounded as the house sort of fights back on them. And so we have wound tokens for people to keep track of just how injured they've gotten uh, over the course of the night. And then at the end, the final phase, uh, the mourning phase, is some of them, whether you survive or not, depends on how injured you've been in the course of the night. So like that sort of horror movie idea of just people getting, you know, knocked around for the course of the movie and, you know, worse and worse and worse and worse until daybreak and everything resolves. Yeah, I'm super getting like horror movie vibes. I do like the fact that you a little bit ago were kind of talking about the different, hey, like aliens, I'm good with that, but I'm not so good with the home. And I feel like horror movies for me is that like some horror movies I'm totally down to watch. But if you put any horror movie with a small child and bad things happen to them, I immediately mm-hmm. do not want to watch it. Yeah. I'm just like, nope, nope, can't do it. I can't even look at the trailers. It freaks me out. and It makes me sad. Yeah, I'll, I'll do like slashers all day, every yes. day. I love a good slasher. But then like something where there are visuals that are going to creep you out, especially if like I'll see them in real, in real life. I just can't deal. Like the YouTube short lights out messed me up like, oh interesting w- which is something doug sent me during the the, the course of the design to be like look oh no <laughs> so wait you got messed up and then you made oh come on that's rude why'd you sell well, that i i warned them i warned them and like yeah jules is much tougher when it comes to horror movies than i am i'm, I'm pretty desensitized <laughs> at this point <laughs> well i say that there are definitely things i will not watch um but like yeah it's horror's kind of been I don't know, my career has really, really just, like, been very horror-centric uh, last couple of years. And this, I think that's just literally mimicking my personal preferences <laughs> in life, because I, I really like horror movies and literature and games. Though I'm a big baby about horror games in general, like video games, because, yeah, it's funny. I can, I can do horror art um, LARPs and tabletop games all day long, but when it comes to horror video games, I am a big baby. Huh. Very interesting. So then what is the experience that you guys are hoping will come out of people playing this RPG? I think for me, if you don't mind me saying this first, Doug. Yeah, yeah, go for it. One of the, I mean, and one of the reasons it's, it's going to loops kind of loops back to um, the prompt cards having two questions that the players can choose from is that I really like watching people scare themselves uh, by inventing you know what? What is that thing that's just beyond the door? You only get a hint of it from the actual text of you know whatever piece of media we're we're talking about. But the audience or reader or player is the person who inserts the truth behind what that entity is uh, and its nature. I think back to, I think back to this movie that just came out not that long ago, <laughs> Skinnamarink, which is um. But definitely a movie that neither of you should watch based on the hardest of passes yeah yeah very very hard pass on that for both of you i, I would assume it, it's very kind of experimental and there's a lot of i one of my favorite things to do with people who've also watched a movie is just kind of talk about theories about what's kind of really going on and it's it's kind of like what do you call those like workshop plots where you look at something and it's really really interesting to see what people project onto it and what it says about their biggest fears and 
that's kind of my favorite part of watching other people play home and also playing home myself is kind of having this opportunity to watch people really dig into okay this is scary but how do i make it scarier and then constantly trying to one up themselves and confront these things and come up with like what is the ultimate thing that would scare me the most and to dig into like okay what and the why of that why does this thing scare me all with the safety mechanics in place more like if they need to draw back from that right mm-hmm. and i i like that there's that safety net there and that it's a game that kind of constantly asks you to examine your fear and kind of really <laughs> really think about like why it is that you are afraid of these things because that's the only way that you can continue to play this one up in game with yourself wow and i'm for almost everything rpg related that i do like my goal is that people tell a really great story with their friends and you know i think this does a good job of helping them tell a really great horror story for all the reasons that Jules put way more gracefully than I could that like the just seeing people be creative together is really really fun even if it's like that sort of what is it type two fun yeah or type b was it type a fun or no is it type oh I I should know these terms because I've had to use them in presentations before I don't even know what these terms are. I'm thinking blood. Like fun as in not like, ha ha, yay, fun, but like, it's almost like being engaged or stimulated and like thinking about things. And I don't know, the way that like watching a sad movie is kind of fun in a way, right? Versus like watching a comedy is fun. Or like a roller coaster. I was thinking more like a strategy game versus a party game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How did the two of you end up getting the game published? Walk me through that. Yeah, so we had always had like really good relationships with uh, Matt and Brandon from Wet Ink. And we, we also just really like them as designers and playtesters. And both of them were in a playtest that uh, we were running of it online during the, the dark times. And afterwards... They were like, hey, so we were kind of looking for uh, a horror game with a haunted house. And this kind of like pushes all the buttons we were hoping a game that we would find would push. So are you interested? And we were both like, yeah, that's actually kind of why we wanted to play test with you in addition to getting your feedback. So it it happened pretty naturally and, and pretty organically. And it was pretty great. No, that's awesome that you were able to utilize your previous relationships and that they saw the game and they're like, yep, that fills what we need. That's a great mm-hmm. way to get a game signed. They had also just recently published Jiangxi uh, Blood of the Banquet Hall, which I was really, a bit of Chan worked on that uh, along with Sedwin Lim. And like, that was, I was really, really <laughs> excited about that one. And I, I mean, I I have it. I can barely see it on my shelf now. If I kind of tilt my head in a weird direction, that hurts. <laughs> um, but that was very much like on my mind at the time, and it's also you know ha- has some similar themes in that, like it's it's horror. So I don't know. It was kind of like the stars were aligning, yeah, <laughs> in a certain way, right? Like it was just the timing of everything. It's funny because Banana actually talked about that game on my podcast too, like a season or two ago. So it did sound really cool. 
Yeah, and they already had the experience of like, you know, the more than just a book and dice kind of role-playing game. Do you find that's a hard sell for publishers to pitch something that isn't just a book and dice? It really depends. It, it depends so much on the publisher. <laughs> because so right now, what I'm actually finding more of are, is that, well, <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny little like nook of a lot of publishers are really interested in more than a book and dice right now. Like they want weird components or strange ones uh, that you don't necessarily see as often because they're looking for innovation. But at the same time, depending on what you come up with for them, they'll be like, okay, maybe this one's like a little bit too just out there or not like super budget friendly. So people are, I don't know, it's a weird time right now where I feel like I've seen a big push for innovative thinking when it comes to components. Um, But that's obviously always going to kind of butt heads against budget. Yeah, I could see that. Books are safer in a lot of ways, right? Like, like Jules was saying, like not as innovative. A a book has to stand out more. Like the the content. Not saying that our content here isn't great. I, I think it's phenomenal. But if it's gonna be a book only, it has to do something else to stand out in the market. And I think whereas like designers are concerned with the quality of the thing and the experience it'll provide, publishers have to be concerned with how marketable is this? And is this going to make people go, oh, I want to get that? Rather than paying like, you know, eight bucks for a PDF on drive-thru, are they going to want to pick up the physical copy that, you know, usually gets the, the publisher more? Yeah, I could definitely see that. I also know a lot of the publishers that do RPGs, it's easier to get that book made in like Canada or in the US versus like all the way in China. So it definitely helps with shipping, especially during, as you said, the dark times when shipping became a pain to say the least. So how long did it go from that initial inspiration of the game to this game releasing so people can have a physical copy? A million years. Wow. It's <laughs> what it feels like <laughs> a little bit. Just, I know, because we just started, we started, I mean, again, also we, had a pandemic in the middle of our design right. process uh well that started in the middle of the design process and then i also i don't know i mean part of it was i'm actually kind of impressed with how quickly we were able to get things together considering that on top of the fact that i got long covid and we also we wanted to play test a lot to really make sure that you know we had a really polished product um and that we were basically making the best game we possibly could and we're definitely we were definitely on the like <laughs> uh maybe you want to you know go we went on the overboard side potentially on how much playtesting we did but i i i very like vastly preferred uh that approach to the i'm so nervous because this game has maybe not been played enough right. <laughs> approach yeah and during the kickstarter we like ran our what we thought was going to be the very final play test, right? They're like, okay, we're going to stress test it this way. Like, we're just going to make sure this works, but of course it will. And one of the core mechanics, we realized there was like a potential problem with it. And so then, you know, it wasn't like a totally back to the drawing board thing, but we had to rework some stuff. And then it took, I think, three or four more play tests after that before we were able to sort of lock in the way that wounds work now. And so that was 
that was stressful and uh, remarkably patient of wet ink, honestly. So I, I would say from start to finish, like from the first time I started like jotting down the ideas for this in any kind of form more than just like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if five or six years, probably. I'm, I'm trying to look at our first spreadsheet and see when we created it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was because we had been going for quite a while already before pandemic right. times hit. And then we were still going strong for like a lot of that. Oh my God, it's like what? I feel like an digital yeah. archaeologist like looking through these, this document. Oh, well, this one was just created in 2020. But so we had been going yeah. for a little bit before then. Yeah, I think it was like right after my daughter was born was when I did my first play test. Oh my God. Yeah, that sounds right. That's yeah. <laughs> it's like a little bit terrifying perspective to put it in. Cause I just got your holiday card <laughs> and your daughter is like a full, human yeah. being, a full grown human yeah, she's being. Six now. I just love the fact that you can age your game on a human. Just be like, yep. It's yeah. that much human life. <laughs> it's, it's Penelope years old. That's yeah. so funny. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah. So you definitely you had some time to work on that. How do you figure out when you're ready to start playtesting an RPG or in this case, this game? I, I mean, I'm a big, big fan, both in board games and RPGs of like, get it to the table as soon as possible. Even if you're like, hey, I want to test the world building, like just get the world building to the table. If you're, hey, I want to try this, like, I want to see if drawing from this central deck is fun getting stuff to the table as fast as possible so the moment i can i i get something to the table even if i'm playing it with people who know like this is going to be part of a game right i'm i always want it there as fast as possible i don't know about you jules yeah i generally feel the same way where i want enough in, i want infrastructure there so that i'm not i i, I like to over prepare for things and just because i I get really nervous when running a first playtest of anything, uh, and I want to make sure that I like I know what I'm doing, like what or, you know that I have a plan in place for. Okay, these are the aspects I want to focus on in the playtest. Full transparency for everybody, so that I'm getting the best feedback possible, and they're not expecting you know like a, a full game if we're not ready to present a full game. I want the playtesters to know what specifically we are trying to focus on. But I want there to be enough that it's at le it's gonna we're we're gonna get usable feedback because it's it's I've I've participated in a few playtests over the years where there was really 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 bare minimum <laughs> stuffing it's it's like okay here here's the playtest and it'll be like this kind of abstract idea and then we just kind of talk about it and there's like not really like anything else. There's like maybe like some materials involved, but like maybe they're not actually that important. Um, so I do I do like to strike kind of a a balance between my normal overpreparedness, and because I I also don't want to end up developing a game that ends up having a foundation that just simply doesn't really work. Um, uh, I don't want to sink a bunch of time into you know a game that the the core isn't working for whatever reason. So I think. As soon as you can um, is a, a generally a, a good time to, to start playtests. 
That definitely makes sense. For your audience or your playtesters you're looking to get, are you looking for people that are super into RPGs? Are you looking for people that maybe dabble in it? Because I know when I design kind of entry-level games or party games, I actually intentionally try to find people that don't play games to see if they can figure out how to play and if they enjoy it. I think for early playtests, we've generally gravitated towards people who are like the target, you know, the ultimate target audience in that it's, you know, people who have who gravitate towards RPGs. And then later on, I generally like to start pulling playtesters from maybe like adjacent genres and formats of games. Yeah, agreed. And for like first playtests, I even want to have like other designers because sometimes if they're, if we run into a problem, they'll have a suggestion or a solution for it. And I can also, I think, trust other designers or people who've done a lot of playtesting to sort of know what the spirit of those early playtests is. But yeah, then once it's in a close to finished version, getting it out to people who, oh, I've heard about RPGs. They sound kind of cool. Can I play one? (laughs) Yes, you can. And do you have any advice for someone who's trying to create an RPG that isn't the standard dice in a book? Get weird, I I think. Yeah. Like, I I think, yeah, start, start, like, start super weird and then start dialing it back from there if it needs to be. Yeah, like, the the first one I ever designed was a, a game where a friend of mine said, I had an idea and was like, I'm gonna use dice. And he was like, try to not use dice. Think of something else. Like, what's the weirdest way you've ever seen someone resolve a question? And I was like, uh, I mean, there's like people used to figure out who they were going to make out with by spinning a bottle. That's pretty weird. And he was like, yeah, yeah. So if you're going to do that game, like what's that called? I was like, what? No, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I'm doing that. He was like, no, no, no. What's it called? I was like, seven minutes in hell. <laughs> he was like, there you go. And so that's how Seven Minutes in Hell got started. Um, So, like, the more evocative your mechanics can be and, like, the resolution can be, I think the more the design falls into place. I think that's great advice. And for, I know, Jules, you kind of touched on, like, your favorite part of working on this game, but, Doug, did you have a favorite part? And then to both of you, a least favorite part of the design? I mean... My absolute favorite was working with Jules Um, and like the way that their horror brain works is just awesome. And like, I feel like I learned so much about horror writing. Yeah. I mean, more generally, like the people I got to work with on this, we haven't talked about Matthias yet, who did the graphic design for it. Um, But working with him is always just such a treat. He's so talented and so good and so patient, uh, which brings me to the worst part of it. We made a mistake when we sent him the cards for layout and didn't include one detail that needed to be on almost every card in the game. And it wasn't just like, uh, oh, okay, I can select all of them and change the color. It was a, okay, there are 200 cards in the game and 150 of them now need to be relayed out. Oh. And that was, that was the worst 
I think that's its own horror story. Yeah. Yeah, we were both like, I don't think he's ever going to speak to us again. Probably not. Does he still speak to you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, he was he was actually like, oh yeah, that's not that big of a deal. Like I could just do this thing. And I was like, oh. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, that'll just take me like six hours. It's fine. It was, I mean, yeah, working with Doug was great because we went from shared st- or collaborative storytelling th- on um, you know, an actual play podcast, which which was very horror um heavy at times. And kind of getting to evolve like that type of storytelling to okay, and now how do we help other people tell scary stories? was a really kind of fun evolution and least i think my least favorite thing is just um it was really hard at times to play test this digitally mm-hmm. because of the you know normally you would have cards on the table and we we were running this game from like okay here's one google doc that we need that has all the rules in it here's a spreadsheet that has all the cards we have to have hidden information so we're gonna black out all these cells in the spreadsheet but we have to like know which ones we're gonna reveal at what time and like have like a system for what it would be like if we shuffled this deck and like share this with all the players and have it you know make sense and that was quite difficult to manage at times but we I mean, we came up with a system that event, you know, worked well enough that we were able to play test as many times as we did. You didn't use like tabletop simulator. You had to use spreadsheets. Yeah, it was. God, I'm trying to remember. We we tried a few different things over the course of, I think, like the early early pandemic times, to, to and nothing was really quite working for us at the moment. Uh, like nothing was had developed enough to the point where we it would have been a really big time sink and we weren't even sure if it was going to work the way we needed it to now i think you know if if we were doing this whole thing again right now i think we'd be able to to use it one of those systems but at the time it's just like it was just not happening yeah yeah that does sound hard and so do either of you have projects that you worked on together or separately that you want to do a shout out for that people should be looking out for yeah, so I have, uh, I'm the co-designer of the Kids on Bikes line of games. So Kids on Bikes, Teens in Space, which is my favorite, but we probably should have called it Kids in Space for brand recognition. And Kids on Brooms, those are, uh, those have been just so much fun to work on. Um, and I am in the process, probably by the time this comes out, uh, they'll be up, but I'm in the process of moving PDF only, digital only Kickstarters over to um, Drive Through RPG so people can get them there, including the one I did most recently with my friend Ben called Calls to Action, which is like setting up uh, how your adventuring party knows each other so that you don't have to have like some stranger in a bar hire you all for a, a job. It gives you a shared background and like um, some pre established narrative and can help GMs kind of know which direction to go in the first couple adventures, which can feel pretty aimless in those sort of like swords and sorcery role-playing games. So that should be up on drive through really soon if it's not already by the time this comes out. Nice. What about you, Jules? Yeah, as, as for things we've worked on together, I contributed to one of the Kids on Bikes like adventure anthology mm-hmm. books. I think it was Strange Adventures Volume yep. 2. And that was kind of the first thing we that I, I worked on with Doug and yeah things that are things that are happening now um i'll have my second choice of games game coming out at some point this year 
and that's called Undying Fortress, and that's an interactive dark fantasy horror novel. Also, at some point this year, I don't know. I, I have a lot of things coming out, but I don't know when. Um, there will be uh, the Chucky board game that I co-designed with Banana Chan and Eric Slauson. Um, that's being published by Trick or Treat Studios, and that's even based off the Child's Play uh, franchise. And I'm also currently working on an expansion for The Shivers, uh, which is a board game with like kind of light RPG elements uh, that you use these pop-up book rooms uh, to tell your story. So all the all the rooms that you can explore in this game are represented by little pop-up scenes where you get little kind of props and items you can interact with and um, clues that you can find. And I, I just think that's really neat. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of really fun stuff you're working on. Yeah, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a busy year. <laughs> it's funny, actually. I was talking to Eric about the Chucky game. I didn't realize that you guys worked on it together. Oh yeah, yeah. I was at the Save Against Fear, and he's like, "Oh yeah, party games, but also Chucky." And I was like, "What? <laughs> okay, sure." <laughs> yep. Gotta love diversity in design. <laughs> yeah, we know so much about Chucky okay. now. <laughs> we know the lore. I feel like I'm totally good not having had worked on that, but good for you. It sounds like you're the horror person. <laughs> And then I guess I want to ask my last question to close out the show. If you were the designer of any game that you didn't design, what would you have chosen? I'm torn between two, so I want to, I'm going to just say both of them. And one is Alice is Missing, because I've played that game so many times over the past several years. And I, I love games that limit or change the way that you communicate with other players. And it's funny because the other game that I was thinking of saying is uh, this Discord has ghosts in it, because you also are communicating with limitations uh with the other players and i i just think that's a lot of fun it makes you think uh very creatively about what you're doing i was gonna say i have two but i now have three as well uh so alice is missing <laughs> and so for an rpg uh fiasco is just so good um and that sort of like play to lose use your characters like a stolen car kind of thing um i think it's just so great and breaks people out of the like you know dungeons and dragons my character has to succeed or i don't have fun thing and it's it's awesome and then the other one is jenga um which i just think is such a brilliant elegant simple design that is just so good and so like i've never had a bad time playing jenga i don't know anybody who's ever had a bad time playing jenga I was gonna say try playing giant jenga and flip-flops and have it fall on your foot that'll okay. hurt <laughs> that yep that would be one example yep but no i agree and thanks again both of you for joining and everyone who's been listening to this episode of game design unboxed inspiration to publication episode 83 home and for anyone trying to find either of you online on social media is there anywhere that you'd want them to follow you that used to be so easy um <laughs> <laughs> For me, probably Blue Sky. Um, I'm Doug Lewandowski, one word, on Blue Sky. Yeah, that's that's probably the spot. Yeah, I think for me at this point, I used to be much more uh, present on Twitter. Yeah, same. And I'm, I'm still technically there. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think now the best thing is probably to find me on Instagram, which is uh, young sooner or later. <laughs> so my name, my first name, but then or later at the at the end or yeah 
variation of my first name, rather. So it's Y E O N S O O N E R O R L A T E R. I think I'm dyslexic. I might have butchered that, but it's something like that. I spelled it out in my head. You're good, and I'm a bad speller, so we're good. <laughs> it's so funny. And then, yeah, I'm your host, Danielle Reynolds. And if you're trying to find me on social media, you can find me also on Instagram, Blue Sky. And I am still on Twitter or X or whatever the heck. Uh, and that's as Token Gamer. But mine's spelled G-A-Y-M-E-R. So, yeah. Well, thank you both of you for being on the show. It's been cool talking all the different, like, horror and RPG stuff and kind of learning more about how you design. Thanks so much for having us on. This was yeah, awesome. thanks for having us. Thank you for joining Danielle for another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. And if you're looking for a great board game, bag, playmat, or gaming table, check out All Play at letsallplay.com. Join us next time.